0: Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, that's right where we left off last week as we wrapped up at verse 16. And so we will press onward this morning. Picking up at verse 17, hopefully on your way in, you grab an outline as if you uh, are familiar with worshiping with us, then you know that outline is going to be our guide through God's word this morning. And uh, if you did not, then the answer will be on the, the screen behind me as we move through this morning's text. But I encourage you, the most important part is having uh, your copy of God's Word open or powered on to uh, that portion of Ephesians chapter 4 this morning. As this morning's sermon will get to the heart of exactly how we are to be living when it comes to living out the standard that we are to be pursuing as those who are in Christ. Christ. Now, we've been building up to this moment for a while. We've, we've walked through all the way through, completed uh, chapters 1 through 3, completed most of, chapters, uh, of chapter 4 up to this point. A couple weeks ago, we made that turn where we saw, and I've reminded us of this every week, just so that we, we really lock it in because it speaks to the context of everything that we're reading in the book of Ephesians as Paul clearly laid it out so that in those first three chapters... We've seen those first three chapters soaked with doctrine and uh, explaining and pointing to backward in scripture, pointing to who God is, how he has acted in history from the foundations of the world to set aside for himself a people who would worship him and be in right relationship with him and be made holy. And indeed, holiness and righteousness is exactly what we are getting to this morning. So those first three chapters, soaked in doctrine, then these last three chapters, which we've been through chapter four now uh, for the last few weeks, these last three chapters are how does that doctrine then move our feet in obedience? How does that affect our daily lives in Christ? And this morning, we're getting right to the heart of holiness and righteousness, The bottom line message for us today is that if we are not pursuing Christ-like holiness with all that we are, then the question we have to ask ourselves is what the heck are we doing? If Christ-likeness is not our standard and focal point, then we are adrift without our anchor. If we are not growing in righteousness, then the serious question is, what are we doing? If everything that we talk about and do and read from God's word and then everything that we do as we gather around God's word in Sunday school and everything that we do as we gather around God's word here and sing these songs that declare the truths of God's word. If all of it isn't moving our feet to a life that is pursuing Christ-like holiness and righteousness with everything that we have, then what are we doing? That is at the heart of Paul's message this morning. As we look, I'm going to encourage you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word once again. As we read from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 24 will be our text this morning. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is the word of God. God, as we deal with your word this morning. We pray sincerely that your word would deal with us. I pray this often, God, when, when we come before your word, but I pray it sincerely this morning that you would convict our hearts in all the most necessary places this morning. As we consider this idea of living and pursuing Holiness and righteousness with all that we have. We know at our core that we all fall short of this goal. And so we ask that you supply that abundance of glorious grace that you have supplied us in Christ to pursue that life with all that we have. Pray that if there be anyone here this morning that is not pursuing holiness, that is not pursuing righteousness In Christ, that you would draw them to yourself this morning. Make this grace so abundantly evident to them and guide them in their repentance. Pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated this morning, church. So as we continue to look. I I just real quick want to uh, frame everything in light of what we saw and how we built up to this point last week. We've seen here uh, as we've split those first 13 verses of, or excuse me, first 16 verses of chapter 4. We split up into two sermons and there we saw just this overwhelming idea of our unity in Christ and how Christ has built his church For the express purpose of declaring His glory. And this was, in fact, on full display last week. As our first point last week as we looked was that unity does not equate to uniformity. As we saw that Christ has gifted and built each and every one of us with unique gifts, talents, and abilities. For the purpose of those gifts, talents, and abilities. To be used within the context of His church. Within the context of unity. So that as we use those unique gift, talents, and abilities, we are building up one another. We are growing closer in Christ's likeness as we reflect His glory. So there we saw that our diversity is designed to deepen our humility and enhance our unity. Our diversity is not something that we are to to take pride in and boast in, but rather it's something that is to grow us in seeing how our brothers and sisters are strengthened in areas where we are weak so that as we bring our strengths together as His church, we lift one another up and we enhance our unity as we reflect His glory. And there we reminded ourselves last week that Christ has gifted His church that we might live on mission for His glory. So as we walk in unity, as we walk in our giftedness and sharpen those things together, our focus is to be the mission which he has given us and that is his glory being made known. And to trust that he has adequately equipped us to glorify his name from generation to generation. Now, as we look to this week, as we move now into this idea, is with the idea of unity in mind, Paul shifts the conversation to begin talking about the new life in Christ. That this unity in the context of the church is to be lived out in the sense, in the idea of holiness. We see this as we begin verse 17. Let's read it again. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. As in-depth as we have been in our study of this incredible letter, you may have noticed or picked up on some characteristics of Paul's writing style that I hope will help you in your study of his other writings. But for instance, we see here at the beginning of this section, of this transition here, that word now. Now then, now this I say and testify. And we see one of these characteristics. Notice how Paul often begins, he'll begin a thought or an idea. He'll expound on an element of that thought or he'll expound on somewhere where that thought leads. And then later on in the letter, maybe it's later on in that chapter or later on in the letter, he'll reference right back to it later on. This morning, as we see, we begin with this word now. This con- the context of this points us back to the beginning of chapter 4, where we begin with, I, therefore, a prisoner in the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And so everything that comes after that is in that context of walking worthy of the calling. And as we've expounded upon the last several weeks, to walk worthy is to walk in unity. Well, now... He continues this idea of expounding upon what it means to walk worthy. So that's where we see that word now points us back to walking worthy. Now this I say and testify in the Lord. So he begins this idea not by just giving some soft point, but he begins this section with a firm exhortation as only he could give. Without getting in the flesh. He roots this exhortation not only in his own encouragement, and he's not saying, Now this I say that you must no longer walk. He says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord. He roots this exhortation not only in his own encouragement for the church, but in his testimony. From the Lord and in the Lord. Therefore, this is coming not just from what he thinks the church should do and look like, but from his own experience of how the Lord desires his church to be and live. He's giving a a testimony that only one who's seen and experienced the resurrected Christ can give. And what is this exhortation that Paul gives that is so strong and that is in the Lord? You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Now, wait a second. There should be something that, that catches our mind right there. That catch, kinda, kinda a, kind of gives us kind of a sideways head tilt. Right? He says, no, you no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Well, he was certainly speaking to a group that was ethnically Gentile, Right? So why would he tell Gentiles that they must no longer walk as Gentiles do? What's the the line of separation? Well, to to make sense of this statement and to to get the context of it, we need to look back just a little bit to chapter 2 and remind ourselves of the identity which Paul has established for the church. And the identity is no longer Jew and Gentile. Rather, the identity is, are you in Christ? So you go back to chapter 2 and you look at verse 3. We, we start with chapter 2 that, that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. This was the former life, right? This is In which you once walked. You followed the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air. In verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body. So he groups all mankind in this group of walking in trespasses and sin, walking in the death of sin, right? Then, as we saw, you move forward. We have been saved by grace through faith. That is verse 8. Not a result of work that no one may boast. We are his workmanship, that he has built us up into something different. Therefore, verse 11. You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So he's already established that for those who are in Christ, the identity of us is no longer Jew or Gentile, Greek, slave, nor free. But our identity is, are you in Christ? And so he's already established that their identity is no longer Gentile. So therefore, when he tells them that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, he's referring back to this same idea, that you must no longer walk in that old manner of life, in the death of sin. So Paul's already established this language of citizenship, that their identity as Gentiles is no longer what defines them. Instead, it's whether or not they are in Christ that determines who they are. And now... As we are seeing, it also determines not just our identity, but it determines how they live. And it's an important distinction to make because this was Israel's issue. It was that They firmly had the identity of the people of God. They identified with that easily. But the problem came in the practice of being the people of God. They took that on as their ethnic identity. That to be Jew was to be part of the people of God. And God was time after time through the prophets saying, this is not how it is to be. That to say that you are my people and then go before false idols and live out all of your sinful inclinations is not how I have set this up. And so Paul here is saying that to be in Christ is not just to be our identity and then for us to just take that on and live that out and then live out however we want. But to be in Christ not only changes our identity, it changes how we live. Paul is testifying to the truth that one cannot be in Christ without having been radically transformed from a life of sin and death to that of true life in Christ. And then from that moment of radical transformation, we begin to walk in eager obedience to God's Word and in a continuous process of radical transformation. This brings us to our first point this morning, that living with eager obedience produces a testimony of Of radical transformation. In fact, if you want to kind of correct the pastor, if you want to kind of add a little something, I kind of caught myself as I was reading back through my outline. You should add a word there in that point. That living with eager obedience produces a testimony of continual radical transformation. Because Paul's made the point that the moment of transformation comes when we become to realize our sinfulness, repent of our sin, and respond to the gospel as God draws us to himself. But then that begins, from that point, we begin a continual process of transformation. So we have our salvation, and our, our justification. Then we have sanctification, which is that living the life of pursuing to live out God's word, to walk in God's ways of continually being made holy. Now let me qualify that with this. When I say radical transformation, I'm not talking exclusively of those testimonies in which the Lord pulls people from the pit of drugs or alcohol or any sort of extreme vice or sin. Of course, we praise God for those testimonies. And we're thankful for his grace to, sell, uh, to save those who are caught in such vices. But oftentimes people think or begin to think that if their testimony isn't one of being redeemed from some radical sin, then it must not be a testimony worth sharing or a testimony of radical transformation. And we see here and throughout scripture that that just simply is not true. That when the Lord brings one of us from the depths of our sinfulness in which we were dead, as we saw in chapter 2, and he makes us alive in Christ, that that is a radical transformation. The radical part of our testimonies is not defined by what sin we have repented from, but instead it is defined by what God has done in bringing us from death to life. Let that soak in and let that encourage, but also let it convict us this morning. That the radical part of our testimony is not what sin we have repented from. It is what God has accomplished in Christ by bringing us from death to life. It's the testimony of my life on that side of knowing Christ had me walking dead in my sinful flesh, And the darkness of my calloused heart and my life on this side of knowing Christ has me walking worthy by grace through faith. You see, church, to walk worthy is to walk regenerate. That is the sub-point for living with eager obedience produces a testimony of radical transformation. So to walk worthy is to walk regenerate. So when I'm saying, are you pursuing holiness? I'm not saying, are you able to keep every single one of God's commands and be holy by your own strength and by your own ability and by your own might? Let me share this quote for you from someone whose ministry I've come to greatly admire and follow. His name is Dustin Binge, and he's, uh, he's a preacher as well as a professor at Southern Seminary. And I saw him put this quote out the other day, Christianity isn't about self-improvement. It's about a whole new life in Christ. So of course, self-improvement church comes along with that, right? But too often we get those two confused or instead we forget about the whole new life in Christ and we focus so wholeheartedly on the self-improvement part. And we do so, so that those outside the church begin to to think of everything in that light. That it's just about making yourself better, being a good person, doing good things. Of course that comes with a whole new life in Christ. But you don't attain the whole new life in Christ by simply trying to make yourself better. Are you with me? Because this is what we're seeing here. And as we'll continue to see This is the reality of what Paul is espousing. That we cannot white knuckle our way into a deeper walk with Christ. What do I mean by that? That is to say that we cannot just try harder, grasp tighter to our holiness, to our life. We cannot just do better, improve, and do more good moral behavior. How'd you like that English? More good. We cannot just try to improve in this area or that and think that that will then correlate to a transformed, regenerate life. We don't walk regenerate by simply making moral improvements to our lives. Rather, our regenerate walk is an overflow of a heart that has been transformed by the truth of the gospel. And that then permeates from the root of the heart, that permeates to every other aspect of our lives. So that inevitably our behavior is transformed and improved and our moral pursuits change. But it has to start from the root of a heart that has been transformed by the truth of the gospel. And so if you are approaching life from a white-knuckle moral mentality, you just might be white-knuckling yourself into a grave. Of self righteousness. Many of us here this morning have far too long attempted to approach the Christian life by trying to make those moral improvements. And sometimes we who have been transformed, sometimes we allow the, the temptation of our flesh to, tempt, to, to crawl back in and try to just try harder. We get those things out of alignment too sometimes. You see, Jesus called out the Pharisees on this very behavior with all of their extra rules and religious self-righteousness, he called them whitewashed tombs. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 27, he says, "'Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, "'for you are whitewashed tombs "'which outwardly appear beautiful.'" You have all these religious laws and these extra laws that you've added on top of God's law on how to pursue moral superiority but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness, is what Jesus said. Making moral behavior changes to a heart that has not been transformed by the gospel is like being told you need open heart surgery and responding by putting a Band-Aid on top of your skin. This cannot be how we pursue Holiness. Holiness, first and foremost, has to be pursued from a heart that has been transformed. Because we can make all the therapeutic, moral adjustments to our lives that we want and then completely miss the transformative grace of God and Jesus Christ. And if you don't believe me, look no further than all of the secular clubs, groups, groups, that seek to do all the the good things, that that seek to give all the money and and build all the things and and, and do all of this good stuff. It's because they are grasping for what they know to be right. The, The law of God has been written on their hearts and they're trying to attain it, but they're doing so outside of a heart that has been transformed by the gospel. So let me ask you this this morning. Has your heart been transformed? Because we move on to verse 18. And Paul begins to continue to set up this separation for us. They are darkened in their understanding. Alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. as you catch all of that language of separation there. They are darkened. As in there is a group that is darkened and there's a group there's not. They are darkened in their understanding. Alienated. Outcast. Separated. Intentionally put off from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. See, much like our modern society... The Gentile mind replaced worship of God with worship of self. They elevated the mind as the greatest of all, while completely ignoring he who gives knowledge, reason, and understanding. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Look at who our society and culture elevates. Those who think outside the box, who seem to have all the answers, who seem to have All the the new things, the new ideas. Those who are in the halls of academia. They're the ones who are elevated to status and respect in our society. Worshipped sometimes. So for all the intelligence and the elevation of the human mind, the Gentile mindset was completely ignorant of the truth of the gospel. So what position did this leave them in relation to God's judgment? Well, Paul made it clear that they're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. So it's a direct correlation that if you worship the self, if you're darkened in your understanding, then This because of the ignorance that is in us or in that way of life and due to that hardness of heart that separates you from the life of God. So for all the intelligence and the elevation of the human mind, they're completely ignorant to the truth of the gospel, right? So all too often we see modern Christianity sacrificing the truth of the gospel for the sake of wanting to be affirming, loving, and accepting of all. Be weary and leery of that type of Christianity, church. The type of Christianity that seeks to be affirming, loving, and accepting of all creates a problem. And the problem is that that isn't the gospel. And Paul makes it clear here. Paul's message here is that if we are to walk worthy, then our lives will be completely different than the world around us. And this invariably means that two groups are created. Those who are in Christ and those who aren't. And if we sacrifice the truth of the gospel for the sake of affirmation, we further undermine the justice and authority of a holy and righteous God. Paul wants to provide clear lines of distinguishing characteristics for those who are in Christ and those who are still under the judgment of a holy God. Because that does two things. It graciously provides those of us who are in Christ the ability to weigh out our walk and see are we walking worthy or are we not? And it also graciously (coughs) provides distinguishment for those who are outside of Christ. Because it reveals to them the error of their ways. Because if we build Christianity up to be nothing but affirming, loving, and accepting, how can the sinner know of their sin? See, church, the truth of the gospel is divisive by nature. Now, you might be asking yourself, how could we spend the last two weeks talking about the unity we have in Christ and then one of our main points this morning, simultaneously say that the gospel is divisive? Well, I'm glad you asked. The unity that we have in Christ is just that. It is in Christ. The gospel is divisive against the things of this world, but it unifies those who submit to it. And so if we seek unity, we must seek unity at the foot of the cross, where we submit all of our sin, nail our old way of life to it, and then walk worthy. I make this distinction because this seems to be, as I've already said, something that is increasingly twisted and confused in our day. There are many who will emphasize the unity of the gospel to the point of overemphasizing the grace of God while completely losing the reality of God's judgment against sin. The problem is that if there's no judgment against sin, then what need do we have for grace? Therefore, at that point, God's grace becomes a cheap commodity. And this line of thinking causes its own divide against absolute truth. So where is this divide that Paul is building for us? He he continues to show these characteristics of these two groups as we continue reading. Verse 19. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality. Greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So we see he first gives us the fruits of those who dwell in the life that is alienated from God. The character of those whose heart is calloused and unregenerate. Those who are darkened in their understanding and who foolishly worship their intellect as the most elevated of status. And Paul creates here the dichotomy of belief versus non-belief. So where does the gospel draw the line? Where does it divide us? It divides us along these lines. First, those who are callous of heart. You see that on your outline this morning. Those who are callous of heart. Those whose heart is hardened in their sinfulness and pursues their desires above all else. Those who have God's law written on their heart but have shunned God and decided to worship the self. And then verse 20, Paul begins to turn to show the life and the characteristics of those who are in Christ. As he says, but that is not the way you learned Christ. So in other words, you know, you know better. That the life of those who are in Christ, who have submitted to the gospel, who have submitted to the work of Christ on the cross, looks invariably different than the life of the Gentile, your former manner of life, the life of sin and death. And so Paul draws the line as those who are callous of heart and those who are in Christ that there can be no similarities between the two. For Paul, the delineation is clear. Those who are in Christ do not look, act, talk, or live anything like those who are living in the darkness of unbelief. We cannot compromise the truth of Scripture for the sake of worldly approval nor the praise of man. We cannot compromise the truth of Scripture for a sense of false unity. Well, we say, we'll just welcome everybody in. We'll welcome all. Because then, invariably, those differences on the truth begin to fester. And begin to grow. And create deep factions. But this is not how we learned Christ. See, Jesus spoke on this in Matthew chapter 25. I encourage you to turn there or uh, and you can just keep your finger there in Ephesians or it'll be on the screen for you as well. But Jesus spoke on this divide of the gospel in Matthew chapter 25 starting verse 31. As he says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. So he's talking about The end of all things, final judgment. And before him will be gathered all the nations. And he will separate people, one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on the right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you welcomed me in. I was naked, you clothed me, I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to see me and you came to me. So, what Jesus is pointing out here is that these there's a clear separation: sheep and goats, and the sheep have lived a life pursuing eager obedience to his word and who have lived a life that looks different than the goats, as we're about to see. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepare for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you did not welcome me naked. You did not clothe me sick and in prison. You did not visit me. Then they will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger, naked, sick or in prison and did not minister to you? then I will answer them saying truly I say to you as you did not do it to one of the least of these you did not do it to me and these will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous into eternal life so notice the change of those who are righteous first those who are righteous are those who are righteous by their own designation now here at the end those who are designated righteous are designated righteous by the king. The separation here is, how did you live your life? Were you designated righteous on your own and yet not doing anything that I said? Or were you wholeheartedly pursuing to live according to my word in eager obedience and that overflowing in your love for others and now I am the one who designates you righteous. See, people will often use the teaching of Jesus and, and the words of Jesus to say and to be affirming of everyone and everything. But Jesus himself makes this distinction that Paul is drawing on here. This is the contrast that light provides. To live in light goes against our sinful nature. To realize our sin and to actively kill our sin and pursue holiness and righteousness is so undesirable for our flesh. Darkness is where our flesh is comfortable. To hide in the darkness, wallow in our sin and shame. Oh, how we love that. But to live in the light, allowing all of our sin and shame to be laid bare while saying, this is who I am and this is who I am pursuing, the image of Christ. Ah, no thank you. That's what our flesh says. Jesus also makes the same distinction of light and darkness. If you turn to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, verse 18. Of course, if you remember, this is in the context of Jesus speaking to Nicodemus, who's come to him questioning some of these same things. Like, how could he need to be born again when he himself is a Pharisee? Verse 18 of John 3, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So this goes back to what I was referencing earlier. Are you carrying out your works on your own in darkness, seeking to white knuckle, try harder, be better? Or have you laid bare your sinfulness in the light of the gospel and had your sinfulness exposed, accepted that, nailed that former manner of life to the cross and now now that your, light, your works have been exposed, whoever does what is true comes to light so that it may clearly seem that his works have been carried out in God. And are you living in, in the grace that God provides and submitting to the grace that God provides because that, as we live in the light, that is where we see that we can pursue holiness and righteousness, not on our own in the darkness, but together unified in the light. Back to Ephesians. And Paul continues to draw these characteristics out This is not the way you learn Christ, he said in verse 20. Verse 21, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, this is the characteristics of those. Verse 22, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness you see church to walk the worthy walk is distinctly marked by a relentless pursuit of holiness paul uses this analogy of putting off as if just taking off the old manner of life and putting on Christ. And this is what it takes. That in the old manner of life, we sought to do everything on our own. And we thought we could do everything on our own. But when we take off that old manner of life and we put on Christ, we realize that it is only by Christ, in His strength, by His grace, for His glory, that we can pursue, relentlessly pursue holiness. You see, church, God in his infinite grace not only provides forgiveness when we fall short of his holy standard, but he equips, he calls, and he empowers us to pursue his holy standard. And It is only by living within his strength that we can pursue it. Let's pray. God, we love you. Thank you for this word. Hard as it may be, difficult as it may be for us to live up to. We ask for your grace and your strength to help us to pursue holiness with relentless fervor. That we would pursue holiness with all that we have and all that we are. Lord, I pray once again, if there's anyone here this morning that has not had their lives transformed, had their heart transformed by the truth of the gospel, repented of their sin, turned to you, put off the old self, I pray that you would bind their wandering heart this morning and draw them to yourself and help them to respond accordingly. For those of us who are in Christ, give us the strength, equip us in the unity that you have brought us with accountability and gentle rebuke, equip us with everything necessary to pursue righteousness and holiness with all that we are. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.